Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Dedu, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview a hero of mine, Gabe Klein. As we get into it into the interview, I won't go into so much depth here, but Gabe has successfully managed to operate in both the private and public sector over the last 20 or so years as one of the first execs at Zipcar, helping to form the company that then became Cardigo and then as the head of the DOT or Department of Transport in both Washington DC and Chicago. He has a great grounding in the space and understands the stuff that works and what doesn't, as well as having a great perspective on what micromobility offers to the conversation regarding cities and urban transport. It was a wonderful conversation. It felt far more like a catch up with a friend than an interview, and I hope that comes through. At some point, some folks came in and were cleaning in his place, and so there's a few noises in the background, but that doesn't last too long. In the meantime, I want to thank a fellow Kiwi company as the sponsor of this episode, Ubco who are accelerating the global transition to electric mobility by designing the world's toughest electric utility vehicles. Engineered and tested in New Zealand and now adopted by consumers and businesses globally, UBCO rugged all-wheel drive two-wheelers stand out in the lightweight electric vehicle space. As the appetite grows for sustainable transport options, UBCO provides utility EVs that are tough, versatile, safe and connected. You may remember that I interviewed their founder, Tim, on episode 96, and we were honored to have them on the stage at the recent Micromobility America event in the Bay Area on the 23rd of September. We will be starting to release some of those sessions and interviews in the next coming couple of weeks, which I'm really excited about. We had some amazing speakers. Uh, Next up will be Andrew Yang next week, so keep an eye out for that. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy, and here's Gabe. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Gabe Klein. How are you going today, Gabe? I am going very well, Oliver. Thanks for having oh, me. Oh, look, I am. I'm stoked to have you on. <laughs> You've been a hero of mine for a while. Oh, thank you. As someone who's been in the urbanist conversation for a long time, I think you've had a lot of really, really amazing things to say, and I'm, I'm absolutely honored to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks. I've actually been a big fan of what you guys do, and I read everything you put out on your newsletter voraciously, actually. Oh, Oh, stoked. Seriously. Yeah, well, like this actually came about because we were going to have you at the Micromobility Conference That's right. and then, yeah, COVID, COVID I and Delta. I really wanted to come, but, you know, with two young unvaccinated kids, I just, I feel like it's got to be like, you know, really big deal to get me out of the house these days. Yeah, oh, no, no, totally. I get it. I Look, I'm stuck in New Zealand. I couldn't make it to the conference oh, either okay. because I couldn't get, yeah, I can't get back into New Zealand. And we actually had a former prime minister write an op-ed last week calling us a smug hermit kingdom. <laughs> which was very funny because we've got not enough capacity to bring people back in. So it means that uh, everybody in New Zealand just stays around. One of the CEOs I've been working with at an electrification company was stuck in New Zealand. And I was like, hey, you got to be stuck somewhere. Not a bad place to be stuck. Yeah, not going to lie. It's it's been pretty, pretty amazing down here. Like we've had a very, really good run, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just challenging because the rest of the world has kind of got back on its feet and we're down here. Or, Or like in America, we're pretending we're back on our feet. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I won't go into anything. No commentary here. Yes. Hey, well, I'm so stoked to have you on. You've got such a wealth of experience in both the private and the public sector. And so what I wanted to do kind of is use this next bit of time that we have together to talk through that story. And then I want to come to micromobility and how, you know, we're you see it in that whole conversation for transport and cities. But I, I want to kind of start maybe with you right back in the very early days, because as I understand it, you started in bikes. I did. I did. When I was five years old, my dad, during the energy crisis, who he was a entrepreneur and he was also a civil rights activist. And he decided he wanted to sort of put the two together and give as many people as possible access to bicycles and skateboards and at the time not scooters mopeds and so i got to work for him as a little kid all the way through like my college days and was always infatuated with anything with a wheel on it basically yeah awesome so when you went through college what did you end up studying just out of yeah, curiosity business uh, specifically marketing and management you know i'm one of these people that thinks you're always selling something you know, whether you're on Capitol Hill trying to get a bill through, whether you are running an agency and trying to get stakeholders to buy into your vision, or whether you're in a company, you're selling to people. And that's sort of the thesis of my book or part of it as well, is that it's not much difference actually between corporate America and government. We have different sort of leaders that we're answering to, but a lot of what you're doing is actually the same. It's a, it's a matter of like who you're doing it for. Yeah, I hear you. And from there, like you started in bikes, as far as I understand, you ended up working for, you You went bigger on the bike thing before you went into the other parts. Yeah, yeah. So when I got out of school, again, worked for my dad for a little bit, then went to Bikes USA, which was the largest bike retailer actually in the world at that time. And uh, it was a big box bike store rollout. It's like, you know, 10,000 square foot stores. It was really fun. I learned a tremendous amount. Unfortunately, like most things bike related it was really challenging financially you know there's not a lot of margins in, in the bike industry and uh, after about four years of that i went on to sort of straight tech and telecommunications and then got into car sharing and that was really interesting yeah but you were in like as i understand it you were in zipcar like pretty early on yeah. i mean that was talk us through what zipcar was like at the time that you got involved uh, it was really interesting it was like the end of 2002 when i met robin chase and started talking to her about running, like, like being the regional vice president for, for Zipcar. And back then, I mean, it was just like, it was Cambridge and Boston, right? It was New York and it was, the, it was DC and, and the DC region. And so I took over that part of the company, the, the DC region. What I loved about it was that you really handled everything from operations to marketing to biz dev. I mean, shoot, I remember the first week, I think I was out in the snow changing somebody's tire. We had like, you know, like 28 cars, you know. So it was a pretty small operation. And by the time I left, we had modeled the operational plan and, and the things we outsourced and didn't. We had modeled like a whole new type of marketing for the company, guerrilla marketing, and then just a much more professional approach with our transit advertising and such. And we had modeled for international expansion. And so after four years, I left to work on something bigger and better, I thought. Yeah, I love the stories of, because Zipcar was not like really anything at the time, right? I remember reading Robin and listening to Robin talk about what Zipcar was like in the early days. And that was for someone to be done in the States. Like there was the model in the U, uh, like in Europe, but even that was sort of like not, it was like community based. It wasn't really like a yeah. service per se. Yeah. And this was the first time that that, you know, so you get, 
it's a whole learning process of going, what does it look like to say we're going to build a fleet of cars and build tech for them? And oh my God. You know, Robin was very funny. Well, 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 that, yeah, Robin's, Robin's stories about yeah. the IoT tech yeah. or like trying to get that connected in the early days was just like, oh, oh, I mean, disaster. we used to build little black boxes <laughs> and put the chips together and put them in the car. You know, Roy Russell and Greg McGuire were in Boston. They'd be like sending us the parts. We'd be assembling it. We'd be you know, trying to wire it into the car. It was before you had like, like an OBD and, and then they did have that later on, but yeah, it was like cell connections were not made for this. You know, it was really challenging, also really interesting. And it's what gave me the idea. Once I saw the first smartphones come out from like Siemens and Microsoft and I knew Apple was coming out was when I'm like, wait a second, if we could do on demand point to point car sharing, with the phone at the center of it instead of the laptop, I mean, the uh, computer, which is what we were using back then. People were making reservations on their computer. I was like, this could be a game changer. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. So I, I'm an investor in a company called Mevo, which is a, a company based in Wellington. And they're the first point-to-point car share system in Australasia. And, even, you know, I think about that and I'm like, I invested in 2019, you know, that's still like 15 years later. And it was kind of still new. Like it's it's growing really well. Like it's actually the business right. itself stacks up really well. And and we've got this amazing partnership with the city councils here. And then we're going to launch overseas and, and, and in Auckland as well. But it's like, it's a long, slow battle to convince a council to let you park in any car park oh, yeah. within the or city the and just say. Or on the street. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally, Which is what, right? and then, what we did here. So, so talk me through. So you finished up at Zipcar. And then you, you were like, as you said, you were trying to move on to what you thought were big and better things. Yeah. What, what did that look like? Yeah. So I went to Mexico for a couple of weeks, drank a little bit of tequila, some beer, read a couple of books. I read Richard Branson's Losing My Virginity and I read Howard Schultz's Pour Your Heart Into It. And uh, both excellent books, by the way. And then as a result, I wrote two business plans. I wrote the car sharing business plan in about three hours. And it was for a point to point car sharing program that revolved around smartphones and smart cars. And the idea was to have a very small vehicle that you could park anywhere perpendicular to the curb that would fit in the urban context. And then to have the smartphone basically play the function of the office and the person and keys and all of that. And I decided, hey, I just read Richard Branson's book. I loved it. I'm just gonna send Richard a email. Now, unfortunately I didn't know his email. So I found Will Whitehorn who was like his right hand, who went on to build Virgin Galactic and mm. sent him an email. And he responded within two hours and said, this is really interesting. I'm going to brief Richard on it, but I'd like you to go to New York and meet with this guy, Dan Porter, who is at Virgin USA. So literally, mm. I was writing this business plan on the plane back. And by the time I landed, I sent this email. And by that night, I had a meeting on that Friday at Virgin's offices in New York, which just says, you know, you got to follow your heart on these things and go. And then as that was working its way, I also wrote another business plan for, after reading Howard Schultz's book, for a mobile organic food truck business with electric vehicles, thinking like, hey, you know, if Howard Schultz is going to spend up to two and a half years trying to get that perfect corner location for his Starbucks, what if I could have a mobile unit that could be in three or four different places in one day? So anyway, as the investment team at Virgin was working through their stuff, I worked on the food trucks and started specking those out. And then it, it's a long story. You, you don't want to hear it all on this podcast. But basically, Roger Penske, who had bought the rights to Smart in America, sold them back to Daimler. 
Daimler got interested in this project and they were like, well, we're going to test this on our own. And they did it in Ulm, Germany. And I was like, okay, so this probably isn't going to happen because Branson had to put all investments on hold. They were burning up a ton of cash on Virgin America. Yeah, if, if you remember that back yeah. in 07. So they put all investments on yeah. hold. Daimler sort of took off with it. Daimler called me when they were going to bring it to the U.S. and said, hey, Gabe, where do you think we should do it? I said, D.C. And they took it to Austin, mm. which I think, I think they wanted like a lower key place to test it. And looking back on it, it was probably a fine idea. But I was like, why aren't you bringing it to Washington? It's like a no-brainer. Yeah. But anyway, it was a really interesting process. I was a little bitter about it at first. Like, oh, we could have done that. And I saw Richard at the Aspen Ideas Fest. And I'm like, Richard, you see this is all over the place now. It's in Amsterdam. It's like, and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Gabe. Oh, and he was with Walter Isaacson, who, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and so yeah, it was yeah. me, Walter yeah. Isaacson, and, and Richard Branson. And Richard puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Gabe, Sometimes the people, in his British accent, sometimes the people with the best ideas don't make any money from them. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, between you and me and whoever's listening to this podcast, it sort of pissed me off yeah, yeah. because yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't pursuing it for the money. I was pursuing it for the innovation. I thought it was such yeah. a great idea. But anyway, you know, it's all water under the bridge. But that's fascinating that you wanted to do it with the perpendicular to the curb yeah. cars, like the smart cars, you know, it's super interesting to see how smart cars have like not caught on in America. I've been always kind of surprised by that. And it's, well, really anywhere, like relatively speaking, you know, it's a perfect city car it's and great. it's just not a thing. It's great. The uh, Renault Twizy, also wonderful yeah. vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that comes down to your insight, which you had back in 2006, 2007, 2008 which is that those cars are great if you need them, if you can get them when you need them, but not necessarily own them because, you know, you buy a car for that sort yeah. of Six Sigma use case. Yes. So, yeah, fascinating. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know about that part of the Virgin connection. I knew I knew that it had been like whatever you had driven ended up as Cardigo. Yeah, fascinating. Whatever came of your mobile yeah. electric food so business? So we built eight of them. Yep. We so what we ended up realizing was like to do this well, you can't just have food trucks. You got to have a commissary. You got to make the food. We hired a four-star chef from the inn at Little Washington. Like it was a big undertaking. We built this commissary. We started a catering arm. We actually ended up building some stores. Reason being that we realized in winter that business was um, suddenly we had eight trucks and winter wasn't so good. And so we needed something to carry us through the winter. And then at a certain point, we had like three partners and I got asked to run the Department of Transportation in Washington, D.C., which is you know, obviously a total fish-out-of-water story. But I said, hey, yeah. guys, I think you can do it. So my last sort of swan song and on the fly was the inauguration. We actually ran the outdoor food truck operation for C3 for Obama's first inauguration, which was awesome and terrible because if anybody came to that, if you're listening to this podcast and you came to that, you remember it was like three degrees out? So imagine trying to operate electric food trucks. All the water was frozen. It was hard to even heat a hot dog. It was terrible. I think we lost $96,000 that day at the inauguration. <laughs> I must say, though, the inside of being able to have like a mobile food unit mm -hmm. that turns up, like obviously that became Uber Eats and that became DoorDash. I still think that there's something in that sense of like, hey, having a mobile unit that turns up, especially in yeah. the age of smartphones, like, hey, you want our food? Like, 
this is where we're going to be and it's amazing and so people too you know i think that that's still a thing well, i think that that could still be so a thing, i you know? thought it could be a large multi-unit business having work in in retail what i've learned since is that it's really hard and so what a lot of these companies do is they start like one or two they test their food out and then they start a brick and mortar but i think you're absolutely right oliver like when you think about it like things sort of are cyclical and they come back around and the idea of having a really nice well-spec food truck that you could just bring to a dense area and just serve everybody might make more sense than just door dashing us into oblivion you know i mean yeah. you can't door dash everything i think also as well if you can have it in really like lovely locations yeah like if you could have it in the middle of a park where you can mm -hmm. set up like temporary seating and all that sort yes of stuff, people would yeah, yeah. That, that's actually gonna uh, we're going to get to this when we get to micromobility in terms of what new behaviors get enabled yeah. and like what we can start doing that we can't do before, which I think is really cool. And where Horace gets really excited and certainly I do as well. But before we get there, you ended up, as you said, heading up the DOT in DC, which is it's a fascinating thing because I, you know, a lot of the government, I mean, I think it's more common now, but I, my sense was at the time that wasn't super, that wasn't a really common thing to give it to a non-professional transport person. You know? I mean, honestly, it was rare that somebody that wasn't an engineer got the job. You know, in most cities, yeah. you had to be a PE to get the job. So not only was I not a PE, and, and there were a couple other people in the country that weren't PEs, like in New York, but to hire somebody out of the private sector that was an entrepreneur that was 36 years old, I was the same age as the mayor. I was like two months younger than him. He was very young too, was mm. unheard of. And it was interesting, like people almost didn't know what to make of it. The advocates were like, holy shit, like this guy is either going to be amazing or terrible, right? Mm. And the business community was like, hmm, I don't know what to make of it either. It, hopefully it'll be great. Hopefully he'll understand us. I think the engineers <laughs> were not happy. <laughs> you know? yeah. But I, I mean, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity that Adrian gave me and I learned so much. It was like going and getting an MPA at Harvard or what I would imagine yeah. that to be, to be honest. And take me through, so which years was that? That was 2009? Yeah, January 2009. Again, we had that food truck freezing episode. And then like literally a few days later, I think I went to Mexico that day, came back from my little like three or four day vacation and started at the Department of Transportation. And the first week I got asked to go to the White House and I was like, holy shit, you know, this is a big deal. And mm. then I realized all 50 heads of the state DOTs, and we were considered a state for their purposes, we're a state and a city mm. and a county, were invited to the mm. White House. So we walk in and like Ray LaHood is there. He's the new head of the US DOT. And he says, hey, where's the guy from, from DC? Where's he at? And I sort of shyly raise my hand. And he's like, when are you going to take care of all these potholes, Gabe? <laughs> like in the White House, like this is my first initiation in front of all 50 of my compatriots. Yeah. Anyway, I took that to heart and we started something called Pothole Palooza, where we said, mm -hmm. and again, this is me putting my marketing hat on. I'm like, what's the one thing that DOT heads and city residents hate more than anything? Yes. Potholes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so totally. let's, let's have fun with this. So we have Pothole Palooza. We had these things that would fill potholes in like two minutes, these pothole killers. Mm -hmm. So we made it fun. We used like C-Click Fix and we used Twitter and we said, hey, send us a picture of pothole. We'll send somebody out. I think it was in 24, 48 hours to fix it. And then we tracked it mm -hmm. all. 
and we made it into like a like a contest and a party and it was fun and people loved it people loved it mm-hmm. and ray LaHood was like hey these guys actually do know how to fix bottles yeah funny and how long were you there in dc let's see i think i was there exactly 24 months because adrian unfortunately was not reelected. but mm-hmm. i don't know if anybody's and i'm not trying to toot my own horn here but between dc and chicago's like five years i don't know if anybody's gotten more done in five years in two cities i mean mm. we launched some of the first protected bike lanes in the country we started building a streetcar system we expanded the circulator bus we started the bike share system we overhauled the whole permit structure we built an online permitting system that the public could use i mean i could go on and on and bore you mm. and in chicago we built the chicago riverwalk and Again, one of the biggest bike share systems in the country, 100 miles of bike lanes. But, you know, that's why I wrote a book about it. Because people, when I finished, people were like, how did you do all this? I was like, first of all, we had amazing people in the agencies. People that were already there, people that I hired, people that were excited, that we got excited about making change. And we put together, like, really detailed plans and we executed on them. Just like we would if we were, mm. if we were in a startup. Like, I, basically, we ran them like well-funded startups. Obviously, you, I can imagine they would have looked at someone like yourself who walks in and go, you know, the, the, the more traditional mm-hmm. conservative lobby in a city would look at you and say, oh, no, here's a young person with ideas, you know. And I asked that question in the context of obviously micro because we're going to get to that in a second. But yeah. like, you know, I think the biggest thing that we face when we when we have these conversations around micro mobility is like, hey, look, we've got these amazing new vehicles. We need new infrastructure for them. It requires us to probably take away a bunch of car parking on the road because car parking is just a totally useless and an inefficient use of space. But that itself becomes a battle. Like I ended up founding an organization called Urban Nerds and I do lobbying around New Zealand on this stuff because I was in the micromobility game and I'm just like so frustrated to try and change stuff. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, there were some people just didn't like me because my age. They didn't think I had the requisite, you know, background experience skills. And, you know, like I was talking to a a woman today who's working on bike infrastructure in Boston. And she's like, I have to admit to you, like, I don't have a background in this stuff. I just know from the standpoint of being a mom and this and that what's needed. I was like, you are the perfect person to be doing this because you understand what's needed and you don't have all these biases about what you can't do. And that's how I was. Mm. I had no biases. I thought if you said you could do something and your boss backed you up on it, you could just do it. To be honest, that ignorance really helped me and it it worked for me. And that's one of the reasons that we got a tremendous amount done, I think. You came out of that. So you went to Chicago and then you wrote the book? Yeah. Startup Mission? Startup City? Chicago, Startup City, Chicago was a totally different scene. You know, Rahm Emanuel sort of plucked me out of DC after Adrian lost and I finished his term. Oh, was it when Rahm? Because he did it. He was, it was after his first term with Obama, right? And he he was chief of staff. So he had seen the work that we had done. So I have to tell you, the, the only thing about working with Adrian that I, I felt like I was missing something was that I didn't get to start out at the beginning of his term. I came in halfway through and I was like, I wonder what it would be like to start at the beginning of a term. So I got to work on the transition for Ram and I was his first hire because he could only hire like a certain number of people from out of town. And I was one of those people, myself, the police chief, the school's chief. And it was an amazing experience. You know, Ram, like Adrian, gave me a lot of rope a lot of freedom. Mm. And what was complex is you had like 50 mini mayors there because of the aldermen. Some of them were just wonderful people, but it's still just a lot of people to be trying to Mm. please. So I really made a conscious decision to really work for the people of Chicago 
and to answer to Ram and not really get down in the muckety-muck with every single person in the city or I would never get anything done. And I think that's why a lot of people mm -hmm. get stuck. But uh, I'm extremely proud of the work that we did there. An a small team, but an amazing team. And there were a couple of people that worked with me in D.C. that came to Chicago, Scott Kubley and Leah Treat, now Leah Riley. And they were absolutely instrumental in the amount of work that we were able to, to kick out, particularly in micromobility and you know, bikes and all that. That book, Startup City, came when you'd finished there and you were back in D.C. What was the motivation for you to write it in the first place? So I started getting all these requests to speak and to do work, to like do projects. And people kept saying, you know, like it would be mayors or directors of agencies. They'd be like, how did you do this stuff so quickly? And so I realized enough people were asking me that there was a demand for the answers. And then Island Press, publisher came to me. He's like, hey, have you ever thought about writing a book about this? And I was like, actually, it had occurred to me just because of all this, all these requests coming in. And Knight Foundation was generous and funded innovation. And so I spent like three months, four months writing it every morning. I'd lay in bed and just type away. And then probably three or four months editing. And I had a co-writer who ended up getting really busy. So because we got delayed, David Vega mm. Brockowitz started his grad school program at MIT. But he still contributed and helped out and gave some great perspective, particularly from his time at NACTO. Just out of curiosity, the front cover looks like it has the same artist who did Silicon Valley, the HBO <laughs> Silicon Valley intro. Yeah. Did they model it on yours or was, do you have any idea if there's a connection there? You know, I saw it too and I was like, holy shit. But then I realized like there are like that sort of, that imagery has been utilized quite a bit. But because of the timing, I have to say, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It rhymes. It rhymes. I mean, just take it. Yeah. It's, it's and a, look, more, more power to them. Flattery. You know, I mean, if they did, that's, a, that's flattery for me. Totally. I mean, I must say, though, the funny thing about, obviously, Silicon Valley is they've just got terrible build form there. It's yeah. Like, it's, it's, all, it's so super low rise. And, I know. Yeah. It's true. Cool. Well, look, we've kind of got to the point at which I'd love to just ask you the question about micromobility, because I think, you know, obviously, you were going to be coming to the conference, you read our newsletter, you kind of get our thesis. And I'm curious for you, you know, what it offers. Like, do you think it offers anything fundamentally new to the transport conversation as you think about it when you're talking with like, you know, you're talking on both sides, you're talking to the technologists and the people building companies in this space. And also you're talking to, you know, obviously the, the people who are building the cities themselves. What do you think micromobility offers to that transport conversation? I mean, I think, I don't know. I, I tend to think it's like absolutely crucial. You know, the majority of trips in urban areas are less than three miles. You'd be amazed how many are less than one mile. And the number one choice is the car. It's crazy, right? And the world's shifting. In my book, I talked about in the last third of the book, how I thought the world was going to change for the better. And the people were going to spend a lot more time in their communities, but they weren't going to travel as much. They were going to work from home. When they wanted to go to Milan, half the time, they might just go over their computer, you know, using uh, augmented reality and shop that way. And definitely for business, that people were not going to be traveling as much. So what does that mean? It means when you're hanging out in your neighborhood more, most of your trips are going to be in your neighborhood. Because also, traffic, traffic congestion is getting worse and worse, even for regional travel. And at some point, we're going to see 
some regulation slash legislation that's going to change the way we price mobility, right? Particularly mm -hmm. car-oriented mm -hmm. or combustion engine-oriented transportation. So basically, to sum it up, I think the future is micromobility. That, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to fly, but I don't think they're going to fly like we used to fly for just no reason, right? Like, hey, I have a meeting on the West Coast for two hours. I'm just going to get in a plane and go. I think that's all going to change. Now, the pandemic has just sped up my predictions. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. I don't think I'm the only one that maybe had, had these predictions, but I thought like 2025, 2030, this stuff's happening a lot faster. And the challenge is making money. It's the same challenge we had in the 1990s at Bikes USA. The margins are slim. You got to run a really tight business operationally and your marketing has got to be spot on. Yeah, I think that there's... Look, your points around like the technological shifts, I think are absolutely spot on. Like, we're seeing that happen. And I think about the fact that like we run this conference like this with this conference, obviously, but like we have two of them, but otherwise the entire team's distributed. We do all of our work. Like I'm in New Zealand. I produce a podcast from here. Like it's, a, it's totally possible. Like we've built a company yeah. on the back, on the back of that, which is totally viable these days. And yet there's still built in infrastructure that is kind of makes us all car dependent for a bunch of time. Mm -hmm. Like I live in the burbs and I still have to have a car yeah. as frustrated as I am. I have micro mobility stuff, but it's just, I think there's a period of shifting across and that's kind of where I was coming back to that question of like, how will that conversation change? What will supercharge that conversation? Right. Around the adoption of micromobility and things. Because I, the part of the reason I asked that question, do you think it offers anything new and fundamental is it was a comment from a one of the top traffic engineers in New Zealand a couple of, uh, probably like two years ago. And he said, micromobility offers something fundamentally new to the conversation, which is it's vehicles that are small and lightweight and allow you to get around in a way that we feel vaguely safe. And, you yeah. know, the capabilities of them are a lot more than what we've had with either bikes, cars, or public transport. And that is itself its own classification yeah and i assume when you say micromobility then you mean electric powered mobility whether it be two-wheel three-wheel four-wheel quadricycle yep. whatever electric utility yeah. no i totally agree i mean i think that as the infrastructure shifts we're going to be able to get to that critical mass where you're going to actually see the impacts you're going to see the outcomes in society where you're going to have better health outcomes lower emissions but you know, I mean, the problem is cities have to have the confidence to play to their strengths. I've actually been to Auckland. I've broken in Auckland, a wonderful city. And, you know, they've had some courage there. They've made some changes, although it's, you know, it's, you, you could argue Auckland is as car oriented as many of our cities, right? Oh, yeah. if not more. Yeah. yeah. We have one of the highest rates of car ownership in the, in the world in New Zealand. It's like yeah. Yeah. higher than you guys in the US. Yeah. So, I mean, we definitely have our challenges. Is car ownership going away completely? No, no. Is the combustion engine going away? Yes. Are people living in cities going to change the way they move? Yes. Do people want livability, want everything within a 15 to 20 minute walk of their house? Yes, which lends itself to this. The biggest problem we have, Oliver, is that we're pricing people out of our cities because of NIMBYs. We're not building enough housing. DC had 900,000 people living here in the 50s. We got down to about 600,000. Now we're up to 700,000 and people are saying, oh my God, there's so many people here, right? Like, really? oh yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 there's not. Wow. No, I, I, and the thing, it's sort of like the anti-immigrant type stuff, but it's funny because yeah. it's liberals, right? And they don't see themselves that way, but they're like, eh, I don't really want things to change on my street. I sort of like it the way it is. 
So I think this overlay of equity, environment, and job access, and just social outcomes that are positive is going to force the issue, basically. And the yeah. next generation of yeah. people. You know, Gen Zers, millennials to some extent, but Gen Zers even more, I think, are really going to push for change. At least I hope. Yeah, I get that too. And I also think as well, the micromobility, like, why can we not have density? That is the kind of the big thing that I get, right? Like a lot of people say to us, say to me, especially, you can't have density because where on earth are all the cars going to go? People have to move themselves around. They have to, you know, you have to have the car, the, the, like the, that as a transport system wouldn't function. And it's like, you don't need to own a car with it if you own a smartphone, you know, like if you have that combination of the car share when you need it, and you have the scooter when you need it and you have your own e-bike or your own scooter or whatever and that all of that stuff connects like i don't want to own a car right. you know i have a beautiful car but i just i don't want to own it right i just want to have access to that when i need it and then i'll get what else i need when i need it well you you, know? you also worked at uber i mean i think you know there's a lot of controversies about uber and lyft where they're good for cities bad for cities well they're not good if you use them for everything right but i think one yes. of the powers that they've had in cities is they've been this backstop to car ownership. People that were like on the fence are like, well, I'm moving into the city. It's going to be $2,000 a month, right? For that apartment. I can't really afford yeah. that in a car, but Hey, now that there's Uber and the Metro and the scooter rental, now I feel like I probably can get by. That's powerful. When people start to rely yeah. on it for everything to the detriment of all the other options, then of course we have a problem. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Robin and I, uh, actually Robin came and spoke at Uber when I was there and she, she was talking a lot about the time around the sort of shared autonomous electric and then uh, the, like the heaven and the hell future of autonomous cars and, the, the, and why that was so necessary, yeah, yeah. Like, why it was so necessary that we make them shared. I'm kind of curious, where did you come around to on, on autonomy? Like, do you think it's still a thing? Do you think it's going to be a thing? Do you think it's going to be profound when it comes? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's been really interesting. I read something a few months ago I thought was interesting about like ADAS, you know, ver all the ADAS systems like Tesla and Cadillac, you know, versus the level four or five autonomy that like Waymo is working on, for instance. And what I thought was interesting is this idea that they might meet, right? That the years and years of work being put into ADAS might actually get them up to like a level four system and that you know the folks that are doing level four or five have realized how incredibly hard it is i think we'll absolutely get there it was not going to be 2018. it sounded yeah. good it looked good you could sort of get in the car and you could demo around a parking lot but the fact is it's much harder i do think there will be winners and losers Absolutely. I think there are folks that are far ahead and folks that are not. And I think there's different use cases. I do think there's a great argument for low speed autonomy. You know, I think on campuses, I think on city streets, I think it'll help a lot if cities and these AV companies can come together and figure out the use cases that they really care about, then you can sort of relegate the infrastructure. You know, I, I wrote this article a couple of years ago, 2018, I think about this idea that we needed slow lanes yes. where you could have shared access for scooters, bikes, shared mobility. Jeff Marushian here in DC, who worked with me when I was at DDOT and then ran DDOT, now he's at the White House, but he put in some shared lanes here on 14th Street for bikes, scooters, and buses. I think that's what's going to be needed for autonomous vehicles to roll out sooner in an urban context, to be honest with you. I think we're going to need some some shared, but some dedicated, but shared infrastructure.
we're having a big conversation here in our capital city about a new light rail unit and there's a big you know there's a crew who are like hey don't bother putting in that infrastructure just do dedicated right-of-ways put all some autonomous things on them and that's going to be the future and that's how that's yeah. going to work and i can totally see autonomy being deployed for things like that that makes a lot more sense to me where you've got you know confined bounds of you know how that'll work and and then it's you know you can improve you can improve the technology the, the kind of the major thing when you're deploying an mrt or like a mass rapid transit system is the dedicated right-of-way to ensure that it can move quickly through a city because that's actually the harder thing to solve well exactly like when i built the streetcar system in dc the biggest complaint was it got stuck behind the cars and the reality is that was sort of the downfall of the streetcar yeah. in america was when the cars came it got stuck and it was pretty slow so I think there's a good argument for that no matter what it is. And, and I always come back to like fundamentally, what's the use case? Because whether there's a person driving the vehicle or not, I mean, really, who, who cares that much? Like the public policy people don't care. The people on the vehicle don't care. It's about mm. the cost of it, where it's going, how well it works, how well it serves people. I do agree. I think automated mass transit, which we already have in some cases, makes sense. Mm. Automated planes. Mm. Automated, you know five, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 passenger vehicles. And the other thing yep. is in an urban context, right? The average speed is like 12 miles an hour. Yeah. You know, in, in Manhattan at rush hour, and you can thank Uber maybe for this. It's like two, <laughs> it's like two to three miles per hour in Midtown. So yep. the idea of a low speed vehicle going 25 is pretty attractive to a public policy person. And if it can hold, you know, seven to 12 people or six to 12 people, and be like, let's say, a thirty-second batch deposit, yeah. like into medicine, and, right? a, and a diverted fixed route, right? So, like during the day, it's like during peak, it's running the same route. But off peak, late at night, you have a service worker; they need to get to their door. It brings them to the door. So basically, yeah. like a more flexible transit system to complement the fixed guideway system, which could be automated, could not be, could be rubber tired, could be rail. Those things people still want. And, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick little story. And that is that when all the dockless bikes came, you, you remember dockless mm. bikes? <laughs> oh, I remember dockless bikes. I was actually <laughs> going to ask you about that because I know that, well, Chicago has just now, they went for the, for the dockless bike, like a big dockless bike roller. Yeah, right? yeah. Like the, the thing in Chicago. But like I had friends at Jump who were like, you know, anyway, sorry, we're going, we're going, I'm getting my head of myself. Yeah, you know, let's go back. Okay. So yes, did dockless bikes come to DC when you were there? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm not talking about necessarily Jump or like Spins new electric bikes or Lime, no, but no, like, like the, Chinese the original. Ones? And, and I had like NPR call me and like people are like, Gabe, like you're like the godfather of the docked bike share systems. You must be like in mourning. And I was like, I'm not in mourning. I was like, mm. the docked bike share is going nowhere. And they're like, what do you mean? This is the newest innovation. It's going to kill the capital bike share and Divi and city bike. Yeah, yeah. I was like, here's why that won't happen. Because the systems that we built are top notch. People love them. And they have a place and yeah. people like knowing where to go to get it. The dockless yeah. bikes that are out now are crappy. They're yeah. one or two speed. They have like hard tires. They're just terrible. And they're going to come and go. And they came and went. You know, real quick on the whole dockless bike thing. I think what people forget sometimes is the user experience is really important and the quality of the service is really important. And you can have some flaws in, in your thesis. But if customers don't like what you're providing or doesn't meet their needs, they're going to work. You know, I think when we came back with electric dockless mobility, you know, I think the jump bike was the game changer. You know, Ryan Rizbeck, brought that to me in D.C. 
because I teased him many years earlier. Not teased him, but when he had social bikes and I was a judge at this TRB event, he brought in his first bike and like the pedal fell off when I when I got on it. Like the, it was just like, eh, you know? And Ryan's such a great guy and, yeah. and he worked hard on that. And when he brought it to DC, he was like, all right, try this one. I was like, oh, wow, this is an experience, right? Mm. And sure enough, people loved it, right? And, but then even so, like, Making money in mobility is hard. The capital bike share throws off a little profit in D.C. because there's a bit of a docked monopoly, right? Yeah. You know, it's part of the deal. I think that you look at Singapore, you look at Hong Kong with their transit systems, they make money. But they combine it with their land use and they have like a lot of usage. It's it's the predominant way that people get around. We got to do that in the U.S. We got to make transit, micromobility, you know, we have to make these the primary ways that people move mm. in cities, understanding the suburbs need to be retrofitted and all of that. Yeah. And then we need the shared automobile to be secondary and we need the single occupancy vehicle to be tertiary. Yeah. Then we can make money in, in these businesses. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating the shift that I'm seeing happen. Like at the moment, they're still, even now, isn't a subsidized micromobility provider, like dockless micromobility provider that I can find. There's, you know, there's been talk about it. And I remember talking to the team at WIM who are in Finland and they were building like the the mobility as a service platform and all this sort of stuff. And they're like, we ran the numbers and the marginal cost per kilometer is still too high. It's not like a transit system. It doesn't have the same economics. It can't, you can't just offer a pass on it. But I have seen that happen. Like the the cost curves on a lot of these micromobility services, especially shared, have mm-hmm. really come down. Like there's Beam, who's one yep. of the largest operators in Asia, just started offering in New Zealand a, a subscription for $1.80 a day. So, you know, whatever, 60, 50, $60 a month. And it's saying like, all you can eat. Like, you know, we will just, because we've worked out our marginal cost per kilometer and that's come right down to, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And we can make yep. it work as long as the, the service area is dense enough. And, and I can see, I can just see like, electric with its really low cost of marginal kilometer, like when you put the power in, it's so cheap. And if you can get your depreciation and all your other ops costs down, you can totally do it. Like Horace has right. this post about like what happens when the marginal cost per kilometer gets approaches zero. Well, so a couple comments on that. One is that spin here in the U S has done some really interesting partnerships, particularly the one in Pittsburgh, they're building 50 mobility hubs. They have an exclusive with the city. Yep. There's something called the Pittsburgh Mobility Collective. I worked on it for two years as well. But it's like this idea that if a company or in this case, like six companies are willing to come together and provide everything that the city's asking for, give them an exclusive in exchange. And guess what? They can all make money pretty much. I mean, that's, you know, like if you have six scooter companies in a city, it's a great experiment. I think we've learned a tremendous amount. I don't think anybody's going to make any money. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's something that I think cities have to think about. And I'm not necessarily a fan of monopolistic practices, but if the government's involved, they learn a lot. They say, okay, we're going to do these two providers. I think that makes some sense. Yeah, it does. I also think there's an element of making sure that those are interoperable, that there's a way that you can access yeah. it through a single app. And, and so what, one of the things that we've spent a lot of time on on this podcast is going into the mobility data standards, GBFS, or what sort of stuff to understand, like what are the, because those sure. to me feel like, 
principal communication protocols for a new computing platform, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you get to move, yeah. move things around. Hey, I wanted to come back on something as well, which is we talked in the beginning about your, you know, the, the mobile, the mobile unit of for food and how you didn't think that that necessarily worked. But the, the reason that I asked that is go like, what are the things that you can start seeing emerge when you start having micromobility as a sort of primary, primary uh, means of transportation? Like, how do you think business will change or our cities will change if the per cost kilometer is super low, but we can get around really easily. Like, what does that, what does that yeah. do culturally? Well, I think it's a wonderful thing. I mean, for so many reasons, right? Like back to the food truck thing, I look at what worked. The mobile part worked. The complexity didn't work from a business standpoint. It was really, really hard. You know, I think when you look at micromobility, what's working, what's not working, like here in DC, they're going to what, 20,000 scooters from yeah. like 7,000, but they're saying, hey, you have to have a lock two device. Now, some of my friends in the scooter industry are probably not happy about it and probably wouldn't be happy to hear me say this, but I think it's a really interesting experiment because the number one or number two problem in the scooter industry is scooters disappearing, mm. right? They end up on ships to third world countries, they end up in the river, they end up everywhere, and they're not cheap. Mm. So the idea that it's going to have a lock to like a jump bike, I think is really interesting and saying, oh, but you all have to do it, right? Because if only one company has to do it, it puts them potentially at a bit of a friction disadvantage, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think that's going to be really interesting. And we're going to see like, does lock two really hurt the business? And then what's that interaction with the public space like? Because to get back to your question, how are things going to change? I mean, I think in cities, the public space is sort of like your living room. Like I'm sort of blessed I have a pretty decent sized house, but a lot of my friends don't, right? Mm. And so they're living in apartments or condos and particularly like in places like New York or San Francisco, like your front yard is your living room or the city park. So the idea that people are gonna be spending more time outside, more you know, time zipping around to local destinations, I think it's sort of a given. Yeah. Again, like we're all working from home. It's not gonna change. You know, maybe fewer people work from home and some will go back to the office, I, I hope. Mm. But the idea of more people spending all their time at home and then wanting to get out in the middle of the day or get out after work. But they don't necessarily like they're not trying to go over the bridge to another city. Yeah. They're trying to just get around their community, grab some groceries, see their friends. I mean, I think the use cases are just going to build and build. And I think the cities after the pandemic are like, well, let's lower the speed. Let's keep the speed limits lowered. Let's keep the streets closed to through traffic. Let's look at super blocks like they're doing in Barcelona. All of this lends itself to micromobility. Yeah. I'm in a post, I mean, we have some level of lockdown and all that sort of stuff, but like, you know, our smug hermit kingdom, we, we went through one lockdown and then we haven't had COVID. And, and I can tell you, I mean, maybe it was because we didn't have so much, like long, we didn't have enough time to really like bake in those changes, but our traffic's as bad as it was. All of our land use is like, our plans are still the same. Like nothing's really changed massively in that space. And I, yeah. I think there's sort of like, a, it feels like a, an aberration that like will continue, but over time probably change. And in some ways it's going to make, have, like you talk about, kind of have accelerated some of these changes. But I think about, for example, in the US, like is there stuff on the table that can happen at a federal level where you've got someone like Buttigieg, who's you know obviously super in on the on the transport space, saying like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm all about micromobility. I'd love yeah. for there to be a thing happening there. But also on the other side, going, we need to work at how to identify our cities and effectively remove, as they have in California, 
the ability of NIBIS to be able to effectively say, like, you can't densify housing here. Because that's what I've said, like California, just for context as well in this, just uh, effectively said, there is no such thing as single family house zoning inside of the state of California. So effectively, they've removed that as a classification. Things that are already built will be there, but anything going forward will only effectively get zoned as multifamily, as, as I understand it. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which is, which is wonderful. I mean, look, I think, so I got to work on the presidential transition on the USDOT. I got to meet Secretary Buttigieg. It's brilliant, by the way. Mm. And, you know, more like, okay, when I came into this from a public policy standpoint, there were still these silos like, okay, so you got transportation over here, you got housing over there, you got education, health. And I think people more and more are realizing like it's an ecosystem and one yeah. thing impacts the other. And so like, hey, if everybody stays home, suddenly the transportation system is, is very altered, right? And so like Secretary Buttigieg absolutely understands, you push on this button, this changes, push on that button, this changes. I think that when you look at like the infrastructure bill, the $100 billion that they have that is going to be basically at USDOT's decision to give his grants. I mean, that's never been done before out of a trillion dollars, 10%. I think that you look at the reconciliation bill, you know, it's full of all these interconnected things like broadband access for people in rural areas, but also rail connectivity and, you know, other things. And so we're going to have to look holistically at these problems. And I think in city government, that's absolutely happening more and I think at the yeah. federal government, it will too. Cool. Well, look, yeah. I mean, I guess the, the one thing I kind of want to finish up on, and I'm conscious of time here as well for us, is for you, you've, you've kind of gone on and you're doing a lot of consulting work for various organizations around the country. What's the stuff that you see that's really exciting from an urban design and planning perspective or an integration of new forms of transport like micromobility? You know, what's the cutting edge that you're seeing? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I'll say that now that I've been doing this for so many years and in various ways, I mean, I do venture capital. I have my advisory services firm with my partners. I advise companies on my own. I'm really, I've been infatuated for five years with climate. It's like, I feel like everything is about climate and yeah. safety, particularly for children, but for all people on our city streets, because like we're never gonna reach our full potential with our city streets or our cities themselves if people don't feel safe walking down the streets. And the, the connection between traditional crime and traffic crime and all of that is very real. You know, and so we've got to make our streets safer for transportation to make them safer in many other ways. In terms of what are the, the innovations that I'm really excited about? I mean, I think that like this idea that like a scooter, for instance, can keep itself to a certain speed limit or can alert a rider that's not supposed to be on the sidewalk in a dense area. I think that's really interesting because I think from a public policy standpoint, it can keep city leaders from proliferating scooters. Because they think, ah, oh, somebody's, you know, an elderly person might get hit or, or a child. We aren't going to know where these things are, right? They're going to be in places where they shouldn't be. Also, the idea that you can move them remotely, right? Yeah. So you can move them from one location to another where they shouldn't be to where they should be or to where there's more demand, I think is really, really interesting. I think all of the money and entrepreneurship flowing into that space that we started out talking about offline, but between the car and the bike and the scooter, right? That like quadricycle space where you have some coverage over you. You can maybe have two people and some groceries, but it really technically is a micromobility device. Super interesting to me because it's shared. Yep. 
And then yep. the other thing I would say is the idea of B2B or G2B business micromobility. The idea that you know, door dashers or people at Postmates are going to use scooters with baskets to make their deliveries instead of like triple parking Toyota Camrys in front of places to get a burrito and take it three blocks. It's ridiculous, right? Totally. 100%. Or the mobility hubs, the B2B or the consumer hubs where like a lot of stuff can take place in maybe what used to be a parking garage or was a sort of a slice of a plaza that was never really good for anything. And now we're making it a micromobility hub. That's super interesting. And last, I'll just say cargo bikes for everybody. So cargo bikes for moms, dads, people going grocery shopping on a consumer level, and then for Amazon and UPS and like the postal service is testing them. That is a game changer, which is like electrification meets a high quality cargo bike device along with all the other technology that you can put in it from cameras, automation, electrification, all that. I think it's super exciting. Yeah. I think the cargo bike thing is really, a lot of those cargo bikes are quite expensive. And I actually think that's where the, if the subsidy programs that the governments are rolling out around e-bikes are going to be rolled out anywhere, I totally think that that's where they should be highly focused and targeted. Absolutely. Like Coaster. Hard to, def- yeah. Yeah. Like Coaster's bike is made in the US like 7,500, 8,000. But if you're buying that instead of a Sprinter van, right? Yeah. And when I was working on the transition, and I can't go into detail because I think I signed something saying I wouldn't, but it's really interesting looking at like the U.S. Postal Service and how much of their demand is in cities versus rural and then how long the average trip is. I mean, a lot of those trips can be made with cargo bike. And one of the biggest problems is not the distance, it's the parking. Yeah. Right. So like, let's actually look at what the problems are and let's solve the problems. Let's measure the cost benefit of that against climate and equity and these things that we care about and make better investments. That's really the key going forward, not just willy nilly investments that don't make sense or spending that doesn't make sense. I want to go back just just before we finish up hundred billion dollars. If you had to go spend it, if you were Buttigieg, what would you be doing? Wow. Buttigieg is much smarter than me, but uh, I mean, look, there's some political realities. I mean, we need to spend it fairly throughout the country, for one thing. Folks in rural areas need upgrades. And I will say that, like, one of the things I was really impressed about with him is that he understands that, like, hey, if we give people rural broadband, not only is that a great equalizer, but it will displace unnecessary trips. You're giving yep. people the ability to work in an upgraded fashion from home. You know, so I think that there's a lot of things that needs to be spent on. But I'll tell you, going back to a Portland study from 10 years ago, you know, the bike lane has 64 times the return on investment that the car lane does. Mm-hmm. So from an ROI standpoint, layering the things that we know we have to do to save the planet, I think investing in transit, bike, scooter, infrastructure, and to be honest, straight up subsidies for, yeah. for users. Like, we don't need to buy people scooters we need to give them free access. You know, Spin, along with RK Mellon Foundation in Pittsburgh, is giving like 100 people $500 worth of access to mobility. You know, they're, they're going to get some Zipcar, they're going to get, but they're going to get unlimited transit, unlimited Spin. That's a game changer in terms of job yeah. access. But it also totally. means that that person does need to make a capital investment in a car, which means they can maybe afford a home. So there's this like cascading waterfall of positive impacts when you remove the capital investment of transportation. And I think that 
the government, just like, look, just like healthcare for all, free university for all, soon, transportation access for all. Because it is one of the keys to upward mobility is mobility. Yeah. Fascinating. Gabe Klein, what an absolute pleasure. Oliver, the pleasure was mine. Thanks for having me on. Sorry I couldn't make the conference, but you couldn't either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 totally. <laughs> it's all good. I feel like this was like a beautiful gift on the other side. So yeah, look, thank oh, you. Great. Thank you for your time and I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, just keep up the great work. It's so exciting to, to hear you talk and to be able to jam for a little while. Awesome. Well, same to you guys. I, I love reading your stuff and hopefully I'll get to come to the conference next year if more people get vaccinated. Yeah, I know you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Cool. All right. Thank you.